Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We're going to be in your neck of the woods in this show, Tyler. We're going to the Golden State, the great state of California, to, to have what I think is going to be one of the most interesting conversations we've had on the podcast for a long time. What an amazing guest we have to talk about. Uh, sea level rise and the response uh, to that problem at the local government level uh, with an amazing local government official who uh, has got designs on bigger and better things for the state of California. I'm really excited about the show. We're kind of on a local action kick here. Yeah. Uh, last week, we talked about these uh, trusts, and now we're talking about uh, local city governments, local municipalities on the American shoreline that are being confronted with climate change just right in their backyard with voters that like, you know, know each other and they know the mayor and it's like a small town. So this is going to be, you know, the real this is the real deal here of of adaptation, of talking about what's going to have to happen with real people. It's going to happen at the local level. Uh, you know, buzzwords aren't going to get you get work all the time. You actually have to to produce results. And so we've got a really cool guest today, Peter, to talk us through how local action can work and kind of an optimistic view of how yeah. thinking about the future vis-a-vis -vis climate change, vis-a-vis -vis resilience can actually perhaps even help us solve other social problems and think about other problems uh, that we have uh, in a positive way. Joining us today on the American Shoreline Podcast, it is our privilege to talk with Janelle Kelman. Janelle is a city council member in the city of Sausalito, the stunning city of Sausalito in California on the coast. She served as the mayor of Sausalito for a period of time. She's been on the planning commission and all you local government officials out there around the American Shoreline know how testy those planning commission responsibilities can be. Uh, Janelle served on the planning commission for the city of Sausalito for 10 years in two different stints from 2002 to 2008 and again from 2016 to 2020 and is currently, as I said, a council member. She is also the founder of something very interesting, Tyler, which is called the Center for Sea Level Rise Solutions. This is a nonprofit organization she founded with an incredible group of people to help local governments contend with the uh, problem of sea level rise and climate change on the, on the California coast. She is remarkably also a candidate for Lieutenant Governor of the state of California, currently running for that office. And if that's not impressive enough, she's an ultra marathoner having completed 11. I almost I hope we have time to talk about that. Uh, she has a, a bachelor's degree from Yale University in history. She attended Oxford University and earned her master's in environmental science. And to top it all off, she has a law degree from Stanford University. What an amazing guest, Tyler, uh, right down our alley on the American Shoreline podcast. So so happy to talk to Janelle today. Can't wait to get into it. Let's have a quick word from our sponsors and dive on in. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. 
With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, Janelle, welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. We sure are privileged to speak with you today. Thank you, guys. I am really, really excited about the work you're doing and the opportunity to share some of the uh, efforts we have been taking here in Sausalito and the state of California on climate resilience. Well, I just have to ask, and I'm going to start with your local government experience. Um, the work that is done at local at the local level, as Tyler said in the introduction, is really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to uh, climate change adaptation and response. Uh, it's such a difficult and complex issue. It can really be overwhelming for local governments uh, that are responsible for things like parks and roads and sewers and sometimes education and the normal work of local government. Uh, tell us about your tenure at the city of Sausalito, your 10 years on the planning commission and now and the council and also as mayor. Introduce us to your work there. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. And you're you're right. I think local governments and local decision-making is absolutely fundamental to developing long-term resilience and sustainability because we're on the ground. We know exactly what's happening, what can work and not work in our community. Uh, I moved to Sausalito in 2001, immediately fell in love with this incredible community. We are a waterfront community. We have about a mile long of bayfront shoreline, uh, views of Oakland and, and Mount Tamalpais, um, a favorite place of mine to run. And uh, you know, we have been experiencing things like flooding for a long time in this community. Uh, I got uh, quickly involved with the community when I moved to town in 2001 by joining the Planning Commission. And over the last 20 plus years, I was on and off the Planning Commission for, for 10 years. And in that capacity, you begin to feel really, really connected to your community because you're making all these local decisions around uh, housing and infrastructure and how things are going to get planned long term, short term. And you, you really develop this relationship with your neighbors and your community that uh, is really very special. And I got uh, invited as a member, I was the chair at the time of the Planning Commission, to participate in a long term planning process called the General Plan Update. And that is a 25-year planning process that communities in the state of California have to undertake. And so we had looked in ours uh, in 25 years. And uh, as we cracked it open, we realized we did not have 
uh, any plans around sustainability or resilience. Um, our disaster preparedness planning was really antiquated based on all the new information and things that are happening, like flooding and wildfires and heat events. And so it was a really big lift to uh, begin to get engaged and understand what we were missing. And I began to ask a lot of questions around long-term planning, uh, specifically around sea level rise and flooding, because this is something I'd seen for years. And it turned out we just didn't have a plan in place. The county was doing a lot of good work, but it was at a level that was a little bit too high to enable us to really uh, develop a project and get something funded. And as I asked questions, I realized that I could be a part of the solution. Uh, I'm an environmental lawyer. I practiced in an environmental land use practice in both private practice and EPA and at a utility. So I kind of see across these sectors. So instead of criticizing, I raised my hand and said, let me, let me see if I can help. Uh, and I ran for city council and got uh, elected in 2020. In my first year, I was the vice mayor. And then in my second year, I was the mayor. Janelle, an amazing, first of all, I just love that you dove in. And I think that that's kind of a theme about you is that you grab the bull by the horns, so to speak, and and just kind of, as you say, rather than criticize, you just said, hey, what can I do? And I, I just, I love that about you. And uh, I want to go back to kind of that creation, that that period of time where you were realizing that there, you were asking questions, you were having conversations. Uh, the county was kind of doing good work, but it was a little too high level. Uh, in that, in those moments, in those conversations in Sausalito, what were, were you talking about the character of the community? Were you talking, I mean, because Sausalito is an interesting coastal town and maybe you could talk a little bit about it, but there's a working waterfront area. There's like jobs associated with that. It's also an incredibly, I think it's fair to say affluent community. Uh, it is on the front lines. It's, it's in the San Francisco Bay. Um, what was the attitude, how concerned were people in Sausalito about the changes that were taking place, the socioeconomic changes that were taking place, along with the kind of climate backdrop of all of that? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll just answer the first part of you know my desire to take action. Somebody asked me recently to describe myself, to introduce myself, and I said um, three words uh, describe me pretty well, team, sport, athlete. Um, I think like team sports for me has carved out every way that I uh, operate within the world and with other people, which is a collaborative consensus building type of dynamic. And so when you see a problem, you get into it, right? You don't run from it. You get into it. You bring people together. Uh, so you asked for the like, geographic context. So if you've never been to Sausalito, we are the first town right over the Golden Gate Bridge on the other side of San Francisco. And absolutely, like I said, breathtaking, beautiful community It is a hillside community. On one side is the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which then descends into the Pacific Ocean. And then the other side is this cascading hillside with homes throughout the hillside going down to uh, the main streets and a smaller, flatter section. The majority of the, of the community is, is a hillside community. And the reason I mention that is because people who live on a hill don't often think about sea level rise and flooding. Um, so, and let's take into account that sea level rise is in many ways sort of an incremental change. Uh, if you have uh, a wildfire, as we do here in Northern California, um, you can see uh, smoke in the air. You experience uh, that wildfire sort of immediately. Uh, if you have a heat event, you experience it immediately. Sea level rise is kind of like creeping up on you, literally. <laughs> the, the, it is rising and mm -hmm. creeping up on us. And, what, and part of the issue, and I'm so glad you raised it, Tyler, is we do have historic working waterfront here in Sausalito called the Marin Ship. We made 93 ships for the Pacific Theater during World War II. 
I think it was uh, us and Long Beach. We're talking like those 300 foot ships. And that area was built on fill. And so fill begins to subside over time. And so if you imagine we have this historic area, um, it's an industrial area and it is sinking and it's waterfront. So the water's coming up while the land is sinking. And that of course uh, results in flooding. Uh, I think for the most part, people who live on the hill didn't fully think about, and I don't want to say they didn't appreciate, but they didn't really think about how flooding on the flatter area was going to impact their quality of life. And so I began to talk to people about infrastructure. Um, do you want your running water? Do you want your electricity? Do you want your sanitation work? That all lives and the pump stations live in the flat areas. And when you begin to talk to people about how this can impact them from a holistic perspective, it begins to make more sense. Uh, but it was also something as a waterfront community that I think, oddly enough, people sort of accepted that we just lived with. King tides, high tides, storm surge. Um, it's the kind of thing you see when you live on the water. What I think people didn't fully anticipate was the intensity and the frequency of these floods. Uh, and it really, over the last couple of years, was just coming harder, faster, higher, uh, and really impacting us in, in a big way. Janelle, I would love to dig a little bit deeper into this 25-year plan review process that you undertook on behalf of the city. As you said, a requirement of state law that the towns uh, update their land use planning a documentation every 25 years. Uh, you dust this thing off. You realize that there is nothing in it responding to climate change, sea level rise, and other issues that are coming toward coastal communities all around America. Um, I've got to think when you're faced with that topic area, the daunting and uh, issue, a, a daunting issue, a very complex issue, there's a lot of expertise that goes into understanding the risks that coastal communities face and crafting policies and programs to respond. Um, I would like to know from uh, that experience uh, what you found being the limitations that local governments face when they try to tackle problems of this concern. How concerning was it for you as a planning commission member to look into that uh, set of issues and, and try to come up with a, an approach that works? So, so here's the really interesting point. I don't remember in my 10 years on the planning commission in reviewing projects, I don't remember ever uh, taking sea level rise or flooding or high tides into account. Now, granted, we didn't have a lot of waterfront development, um, but I don't remember that being, being talked about. What I do remember, though, is when we, like you said, cracked open and dusted off this general plan, we referenced a climate action plan, which was mostly focused on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, or our LEAP, our Low Emission Action Plan, uh, also focused on um, banning plastics, of course. But it it didn't have this big lens of disaster preparedness coupled with long-term resilience. And I think that's sort of new dialogue. Uh, Over the last couple of years, the word resilience, resiliency, being resilient. I don't even know if what the, the correct grammar is on that. But that is a new word that began to be inserted into the nomenclature around climate issues. Uh, and so it wasn't something that had been considered uh, back, you know, 25 years ago, which was really quite fascinating when you think about it. Um, and it, people seemed to kind of live with it, that this is just kind of the situation that we were going to have. So as I dug in and I began really rabbit hole it, um, the biggest issue for us was lack of data. 
And that data took a couple of, of forms. Um, what do the models say? There's so many models out there. How much is the sea level rise actually going to happen? Uh, I see a USGS model. I see a NOAA model. I see a local model. I got my county model. Kind of uh, ground uh, sourcing or ground truthing. You know, where should be the source of information around these these predictions and the levels over 2020, 2030, 2050. That was one aspect when I say data. The other aspect was the lack of a vulnerability assessment. Um, and the vulnerability assessment that our county had done in 2017 was a really, really great start, but it really only got us 70, 75% of the way there. And that was intended to look at our key infrastructure points. And, and part of that, again, is a consistency, a lack of consistency around, should I be looking at buckets of information like, my commercial zone, my industrial zone, or should I be looking at key city functions? Like this is a police station. This is a school. Even some of that simple, like, how do I, how do I prioritize? What's the criteria for me to prioritize? What is vulnerable? A lot of that was missing. There was a lot of inconsistency around that. And so when you want to do some long-term planning, if you don't have a model, you know which model to use because you're sort of inundated with too much information. Um, and on the other hand, you're not quite sure what's most vulnerable it really um, slows your growth. And by growth, I mean opportunities for change. Totally. Yeah. Like community growth in yeah, this, yeah. in this sense. And the other, the other element here that I think, uh, you know, Peter and I have certainly been tracking on this podcast is that the data, at least the forecasts have changed over, over this period of time. And our fidelity, our understanding of, you know, just planetary science and what the impacts of all of this greenhouse gas emissions are doing to the planet is like evolving before our eyes. So it's not, we can't just do this every 25 years. It's like these plans have to be kind of alive and able to ingest a new reality of how we understand the planet to be, Um, which is, which is like, totally a different way of looking at, uh, you know, building infrastructure and running a city, for example. Uh, so, so you, you, one of the things that I, I can imagine is that this is complicated stuff. You know, you've already talked about all of these different elements of a city, uh, from, you know, first responders and land use and all sorts of different stuff that, you know, turns into actual like municipal code. Uh, there's expertise in all of these different areas, from the science down to the policy side, um, and I, you you managed to bring these people together. Talk about the evolution from kind of this natural process that you undertook into uh, your center for sea rise solutions. So, um, <laughs> somebody once told me that one of my superpowers is that uh, I get people to volunteer for free. Uh, so I, I am known in our community. They're like, oh, Janelle's got a task force, right? But they also know I have a strong bias towards action. I want us not to plan, not just to plan, uh, but also to have an outcome in mind. What are our goals? What are our objectives? How will we get there? I always want to have something that comes out of any meeting that an action step that we can take to advance ourselves. So let me just give you a quick anecdote from the dais, if you will. Um, and, and partial answer to your question. So when I first got elected, uh, we created a sea level rise task force in Sausalito. And I have to be just really, really blessed that here in town, we had just tremendous experts. We had someone who worked for a local uh, engineering consulting firm. I had somebody who sits on a federal advisory committee for NOAA and for NASA for GIS mapping, actually wrote a GIS textbook. Mm-hmm. 
I had a wildlife biologist. I had this incredible group that I recruited and said, let's tackle this problem. How do we approach sea level rise in Sausalito? And we kind of spun our wheels for about four months because of this, this data issue I mentioned. We were like, what, well, which, which model do we use? And like, where, who, who's got the information we should be relying on? And so part of the reason that I ended up starting the Center for Sea Rise Solutions was because I really wanted to share the knowledge and break down silos because what we learned here shouldn't just be contained here in Sausalito. It needs to be distributed and decentralized as much as possible. So my quick anecdote from the dais was this task force. We worked for about a little over a year. We, we hit the ground running. NOAA was a huge, huge help to us. Becky Smythe, uh, Sarah Vanderschelle from the... Um, a West Coast regional uh, office out here. They were phenomenal. They gave us tons of training and, and resources. And uh, we put together 20-page report, 17 recommendations. I proudly bring this to the council. I present it. I mean, it's research. There's data. I got you know federal regulators that are behind us backing it up. And um, I get questions about risk and probability. And you, know, you made this point uh, a bit ago, Tyler, that it is a change in how we approach resilience. So we're in an earthquake zone. Our planning documents, or our building codes, incorporate uh, earthquake risk, right? And so we know that we have a certain amount of risk. We also know that we have to do certain seismic retrofit and upgrades in order to account for that risk. So when I got questions about, well, why should we put money towards sea level rise? It seems so incremental. That risk is less than the risk of a 7.2 uh, uh, earthquake. The answer obviously is, well, because we don't take account for sea level rise in our planning documentation right now. Uh, but that's the be challenged on risk and probability is real threshold problem when it comes to explaining long-term incremental risk to communities. So we've, we've taken a lot of these learnings and uh, with the Center for Sea Rise Solutions, uh, we really wanted to connect with other decision makers around the country. And so we very quickly said, okay, is this about a roadmap? Is it about... Um, a community of practice? Is it about building out some type of expert advisory board? And we did a series of workshops. We started in Savannah, uh, Georgia, and we met with you know, the, the mayor, um, an alderman from Savannah, the mayor of uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and then this interdisciplinary group. And then we did the same thing in Tampa, uh, Florida. And then we recently did one here in Sausalito around resilient infrastructure. And uh, in two weeks, we'll be in Providence, Rhode Island with Brown University, uh, who are partnered uh, with us to talk about uh, coastal climate communities and how the coastline and adaptation impacts overall public health and safety. And what we have found is that there are so many lessons to be learned and shared uh, in these communities that I even have had the opportunity to go over to France and Portugal and Italy and have these same conversations with other elected officials who want to take action, but aren't quite sure where the information is or how to get started. Wow. That is so amazing and so great. The Center for Sea Rise Solutions. So if you're listening to the podcast at home and you're not driving, it's uh, seariseSolutions.org. You can look at it as you follow along with this show. Uh, Janelle, what I think is so impressive about that is the initiative at the local level and an understanding, having served on the Planning Commission for 10 years and been involved with the city for more than two decades, you understand what the decision-making apparatuses that's available to local government officials, what the pressures are, the economic pressures, the regulatory considerations that have to go into it. Uh, so for a local elected official uh, to take the lead and create this, uh, 
instrument for communication and improvement and training, the Center for Sea Rise Solutions. I am so impressed by that, and I'm so happy that you've done it. It's, uh, as you mentioned, uh, tell us about the services that this uh, center offers and how a local government might avail itself to the expertise that you have uh, assembled. So uh, I'll, I like to tell a quick stories that illustrate some things, but I love this question, Peter, because it lets me tell my uh, my Monaco Ocean Week uh, story. So I got into this practice the last couple of years of just saying yes to meetings and introductions. Tyler Tyler knows this. It's how we met. Um, Absolutely. Right, because you just never know the, the intellectual curiosity and how do you harness all that horsepower together. Uh, and so through a series of yeses, I got invited to Monaco Ocean Week. And I thought, like, Mon- Monaco? Like, like where the casinos are? Like, yes. Turns out that the Monaco um, Foundation, Prince Albert Foundation, uh, takes uh, coastal adaptation and sea level rise and ocean health very seriously. And they have put together just this powerhouse day focused on sea level rise. And I was placed on a panel with uh, the mayor of Biarritz, uh, which is a um, community in uh, the Mediterranean part of France, which is very similar to Sausalito. Uh, and a couple of other elected officials. And our job was going to be at the end of the day to talk about how we took all the lessons learned and we would apply them uh, to our local governments across the world. And so we start out with IPCC scientists and we go into uh, some of the .orgs and the wonderful nonprofits and we hear from regulators and NOAA was there. Uh, And throughout the day, I kept hearing part of the problem or one of the main problems was a lack of political will. And I'm thinking, well, I'm an elected official and I'm here and I I believe in this. There's got to be more to this. And so by the time it got to us and there's our last panel of the day, we ended up having the most amazing conversation about why and how projects get bottlenecked. And it turns out it was a very collaborative environment. It turns out it's not always because your politician doesn't care. It's because they may not have technical capacity to apply for a grant or they might not know how to assemble the right engineering team. Or they simply might not have people in their community to come together to develop this type of task force that I had. And so it was a really kind of aha moment for me in this journey of understanding how important it is for us to share stories with one another and share expertise, um, but also understand, you know, it's not always that someone doesn't want to take action. They just don't have the skills or the tools or the knowledge of how. And so that's part of our mission. We, we say internally in our org that we want to build coastal competency amongst decision makers. And we started with elected officials, but we've expanded it to include those who have decision-making authority over large swaths of of coastal land. And so uh, the ports are a big component of our dialogue and our opportunity here. And so what we are are providing, one of the things we're going to be launching in Providence uh, on October 14th at our workshop, we're launching the first of several, what we're calling regional advisory boards. And so the idea is that we'll put together 20 to 25 interdisciplinary experts. It could be emergency services. It could be public works. um, It could be a a chief resilience officer, anybody who might have an opinion or insight when it comes to long-term coastal adaptation and resilience, bring them into a room and basically offer office hours for communities who need to get a project unstuck or don't even know where to start. And this idea came out of an experience I had with the SEER Hub out of Georgia um, that does a lot of coastal equity adaptation work, where uh, one of our board members, Dr. Emmanuel DiLorenzo, uh, who is now at Brown, uh, introduced me to this group. And 
I was wide eyed. I was like a kid at a candy store. I was like, wait a second, I could ask you guys any question and you're going to help me. And I don't even need to have a chief resilience officer in my community because at the time we did not. I thought, man, this is awesome. And so how do we replicate this so that other communities in need of this expertise have access to it? So that's our that's our big effort. Um, we are also rolling out an AI-driven clearinghouse. So we want to use technology to be able to assemble all of the great research and data and information that is out there. And then long-term, help communities identify sort of the art of what is possible. Um, so to find similarly situated communities and see what they've done in terms of adaptation or mitigation measures and, and be inspired and learn from them as well. And so we're a clearinghouse of resources, but we're also a connecting hub to experts. Man, I'll tell you what, that is such an incredible portfolio of, of yeah, stuff there. Um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit more about action. So, uh, I mean, obviously, Janelle, the, the idea that a community that is like maybe like, like Sausalito was, uh, all of a sudden begins to realize like, oh shoot, we really have a, we have some, some vulnerability here that they could utilize the Center for Sea Rise Solutions portfolio of tricks to find a network of support. It takes so many different types of people, so many different types of expertise. And man, I love the idea about the AI using that to kind of comb through all this data because we are swimming in different reports and all sorts of stuff. And man, AI, we all, we hear the, the negative sides of technology all the time these days with AI. That is a really awesome use for, for AI tech. And I just, I love both of those things. And it's, and it's so siloed. Um, I'll just give a big shout out to a, a local effort down in San Mateo County, One Shoreline. Uh, Len Matterman is the executive director there. And One Shoreline is in San Mateo, which is where San Francisco Airport is located. And this special district has really been leading the way in developing planning documents for coastal adaptation. Um, and they've got some great industry partners, some great real estate partners because of the proximity to the airport uh, and the hotel industry. Um, but they have developed some really leading cutting edge information about here's a model shoreline ordinance. Um, here's some of the planning um, language you could use in your own planning code uh, for a zoning code uh, update. And that information is so, so important. I think that's the type of thing that needs to be able to be accessed and, and at least other people around the country be notified about it or understand that it exists so that we don't have to you know, reinvent the wheel each and every time. And so that was a real inspiration for us, seeing efforts like that, seeing the work out of uh, you know Southeast Florida, folks like uh, Jennifer Hirado, um, who has really just been leading some incredible efforts to bring Southeast Florida together on some of these issues and, and develop these model ordinances for others to emulate. That's where you can really get scale. When we learn from one another and we see what each other has done and we're not reinventing the wheel each and every time. Yeah. Do you, do you have any, um, any examples of like, like in your home turf of Sausalito where this work has turned into, uh, actual projects or, you know, some, some results? Yeah. Yeah. Actually I have, I have a big one. Uh, I think it's a really big one because, part of just getting out in the community and talking about sea level rise and coastal adaptation and ocean health. Um, it turns out a lot of people want to talk about these issues. People are passionate. There's a lot of anxiety, but there's a lot of interest in taking action. And I just had this wonderful turn of events. I gave a presentation 
to our Floating Homes Association. Um, so Sausalito, as I mentioned, waterfront, we have 2,000 marina slips, we have 400 houseboats, um, really famous kind of uh, image of Sausalito are the houseboats. And so I gave a presentation to the Floating Homes Association around sea level rise and the impacts to their infrastructure and overall community. And someone on that, uh, on that call, on that Zoom, happened to be on the board of One Shoreline. And so she called me up, um, Donna Colson, she's the vice mayor of Burlingame, amazing, amazing powerhouse of a woman, and called me up and said, hey, let's talk. And she introduced me to Len. And as I learned from them, I went to them one day and I said, hey, how are you guys funded? How did you, how did you do this? Uh, and they mentored me through developing really a one-page ask to our state senator and our state assemblyman at the time uh, for funding to develop a vulnerability assessment for Sausalito. And so I submitted an ask. Um, I think I asked for, for $4 million, um, but we didn't get the whole thing. We got a million dollars uh, as an earmark in the budget cycle, which was unheard of. Uh, but of course, very, very necessary given our proximity to the water and our proximity to, to San Francisco and uh, to the overall quality of life. And I was just sort of blown away. That's the type of sharing of information and resources that had I not had the mentoring from those two experienced individuals, I might not have known, like, this is actually, this is how you do it. This, this is how you frame this. And this is the ask. And this is how you make the ask. Uh, and that's just an enormous opportunity for us. So now with that money, we were able to hire a sustainability and resilience manager, which we did not have before. Uh, and just this past week, uh, we were doing interviews. We put out an RFP for our sea level rise vulnerability assessment. So we're going to bring in experts to help us develop uh, studies and, op and options and alternatives and engineering around this. Uh, and that's just a really great example of how sharing uh, helps you elevate each other. Love it. Love it. Uh, Tyler and I have had the benefit of talking with some great California coastal leaders over the years of doing this show. And I wanted to mention a couple uh, Gary Griggs at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who's in your neck of the woods, and Charles Lester down at UC Santa Barbara, formerly with the California Coastal Commission. And the reason I mentioned those, uh, those two professionals is because they have helped us understand the tensions that local governments face as they encounter uh, sea level rise risk and begin to try to respond to it. In particular, uh, I think it's fair to say that many times the response to these kinds of risks for coastal communities involves the management or regulation of private property and private property development. Uh, there are discussions about managed retreat or abandonment of certain high-risk areas. I mean, this stuff gets, uh, Janelle, as you know, being on the planning commission for 10 years and, and sitting in the mayor's chair, uh, these topics are quite can be quite explosive uh, because of the financial implications. Can you talk a little bit about how the Center for Sea Rise Solutions helps local communities navigate that very complex policy environment of private property management? So it's a great point, and I'm going to address it in two ways. Um, so, so one aspect of it, and it's a, it's going to be something for us to overcome here in Sausalito is. When you want to plan and, you know, water doesn't care who owns the property, right? So it's going to flood and sometimes those areas are owned by the city and sometimes they're owned by private property owners. And that can be really, really difficult to navigate 
when it comes to overall planning for an area. And so you need a lot of stakeholder engagement, a lot of community uh, engagement to educate and bring people to the table to develop solutions that benefit everybody. But it is, uh, I think, definitely one of those planning obstacles and hurdles to be overcome, and it has to be done with, with intention. Um, I, I'm familiar with, with Charles's work and the, and the work he's done at UC Santa Barbara for uh, their sea level rise uh, plan and some of the work he's done on the Coastal Commission. It's, it's been quite interesting. We, here in, in uh, Marin County, uh, we have a coastal community called Stinson Beach. And that community and, and our county was getting pressure from the Coastal Commission to update its local coastal plan. And the commission was proposing something referred to as managed retreat. And as you point out, that essentially means either relocating or abandoning all the structures in the coastal zone rather than protecting it. And that is a, a very, very difficult path to go down. There's, there's equity issues, there's um, feasibility issues, uh, and there is, of course, private property concerns. And so I think I go back to engage your community, engage the stakeholder groups. There is no one size fits all for everybody. Um, make sure you're bringing people to the table who have interests here and can be quite helpful. A lot of private property owners are very adamant about really great things like beach renourishment um, and wave attenuation, which is also an important part of the tool set for uh, responding to sea level rise. So it's a really interesting dynamic. I believe in bringing uh, sort of the full, um, the full set of tools to the table and then engaging the community around those options and making sure that you hear from members of the public because they're on the ground. They know what, what is happening in their communities and they can understand that best. But it is, um, it is part of the dialogue and communities are having to wade through some really, really hard issues. Well, the, 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 thing that we've been working on here, at least we've been trying to work on it with these podcasts, is that, and I, you know, the Center for Sea Rise Solutions is doing something similar, but by talking about these things, by creating stories that stitch together uh, our lives with what's actually happening in the ocean, in, on the planet, you know, we got to think globally here, but in your backyard too, it becomes possible to come up with, you know, solutions that are in the, I'm going to say, in the public interest when it comes to a shoreline that is retreating. And it's, I think it's really only possible for the public to win in these cases if we are telling those stories and we are stitching together the, the truth that, hey, you know, if we armor up our coasts, we're going to lose our public beaches. It's just it's just a matter of physics. And do you want that to happen? Because it doesn't have to happen. We, we actually can do something about that. I remember when I was first getting started on this on this journey around coastal adaptation, uh, I read an article in Scientific American, and it was about the hydrologic connection between the San Francisco Bay Area. And the, some researchers at Stanford had done a study, a modeling study that showed that putting a seawall down in San Jose, which is probably from Sausalito, about two hour drive, hour and a half um, drive, depending on traffic, um, would cause flooding in the Napa River. And this is probably 300 miles away from one another. And it's that, that type of interconnectivity, the hydrologic connections really have to be taken into account. And that really speaks to the need for not just local planning, but regional planning and looking for ways that we make each other's lives better. Um, this came up uh, in a conversation recently with some regulators. We're looking at um, Highway 37. This is a low-lying roadway 
that basically connects um, Solano County to Sonoma and Marin County. And it floods and it will flood and the state uh, put a, a lot of money into the last year's budget to help fix some of this. Some of the hydrologic modeling is showing that if you were to fix and create more resiliency in that area, you would actually reduce the rate of flooding down in San Jose. So <laughs> what, a, what an incredible conversation to have. You know, how does this all impact one another? I think that's the that's the, one of the great truths of the American shoreline. You said that the, the waves don't care who owns the upland property, and they don't also, and, and the waves and the climate conditions also don't care about jurisdictional boundaries between cities and counties. Uh, these We're all connected to the coast. Um, your work uh, at the Planning Commission and on the Council and in the Center for Sea Level Rise Solutions is all about trying to find creative and innovative ways to respond to the challenges ahead. It's a great a great body of work, Janelle, and uh, leads me to the question uh, that I'm kind of thrilled to ask. To see a local coastal mayor and city council member be uh, run for the lieutenant governor of California in that position with the understanding of the issues that you have developed over 20 years is a real thrill for the American shoreline. I think that kind of leadership is so needed on these topics. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your decision to run for a lieutenant governor of California? Absolutely. I am so excited to be running for Lieutenant Governor of California because I think it's a huge opportunity to address so many of the critical issues facing the entire state that I've actually had hands-on experience dealing with in, in Sausalito. Um, it's funny, when I first announced, I had people asking, which is probably a very um, you know, a, a normal question, you know, why I would want to go from a local government to a statewide role? And my answer is because sometimes it feels like we need city representation in state government because California is made up of cities with local needs. And many of the solutions we've pursued here in Sausalito and throughout Marin County can map onto other California cities. And our approach of bringing the community together and stakeholder engagement and of striving towards pragmatic common sense solutions, that can map itself onto the entire state. And so that's why sort of conceptually I wanted to make this leap. Um, but what other people also don't always know is that the lieutenant governor is a really cool job, you guys. Um, it's a really great role. So the lieutenant governor has uh, five main statutory duties. And you know, one is, of course, to sit in when the governor is out of town and presides over the state senate. But the last three are really the meat and potatoes, the really substance. Um, serves on the regents of the UC system and votes. Serves on the board of the state college system and votes. Uh, and the second part on climate is where I think you know, we really uh, overlap serves on the Ocean Protection Council, serves on the California Coastal Commission, alternates as chair of the State Lands Commission, uh, which is interesting for so many reasons. It's offshore, um, uh, uh, our offshore wind, um, oil and gas leases. Um, a lot of our ports um, are uh, administered in coordination with the State Lands Commission. So a lot of that uh, infrastructure readiness, uh, that's state lands. Uh, and then the last substantive area is around economic growth. And the lieutenant governor gets to chair the Committee on Economic Growth and advise uh, the legislature and the private sector and the governor on these issues. And when you bring those issues together and you empower somebody who has deep climate experience, particularly around ocean health and coastal adaptation, that for me looks like opportunity for the state. That for me looks like opportunity for the environment, opportunity to do something really special and because of the relationship with higher education, mobilize a diverse set of constituents and bring younger voters to the table 
to help envision a, a new California. I, we're kind of, and we didn't make this up, but we're talking about reviving the California dream. So something that shifts the planet in a more positive direction, and then also improves the lives of every Californian. And I don't think you could think about California without thinking about the ocean and ocean health. You can't think about California, think about water and economic growth um, and higher education. I mean, we have 116 uh, community colleges. We have one of the best state college and UC systems, university systems uh, in the country. And so this is a really special time for us to, to bring up new leaders who want to take uh, real action around climate and, and other key issues, affordable housing, job creation, homelessness. This is, this is the time for it. And we, we really can't wait any longer. Like you, Janelle, like you are, you are perfect for this role. I'm saying this as uh, a person that has, has come to know you over the past year or so. And uh, I just, I, I really think that you have a role to play. And I'll, I'll go a little further. You know, the, the way that you, uh, have assembled and, you know, the, the way that you approach the, the sea level rise problem, bringing in all of these different perspectives, you've used the term de-silo twice in this interview. That is like that. The problem with our, with our government is siloization across the board in that, you know, the criminal justice system doesn't have any idea what anything else in the, in the government is doing. They're just looking after themselves. And it's like, no, we're, it's like, it's all interconnected into one society and that's that you know as is our relationship with the environment and so i just think that you're you really have a skill set that could bring so much to the table not only within those five statutory uh you know areas but also as a mentor and a cheerleader for the legislative bodies i just think it would just be a really you i just think you'd you'd kick it, kick butt you'd kick butt <laughs> in there I, as a californian i'd be stoked yeah i and i am stoked i mean i am so passionate about this work and you're right. These things are interrelated and you know, I've been passionate about the environment my entire career and I'm running for this role of Lieutenant governor because I think as our climate changes, so much our policy solutions. Uh, we've done a lot of great work in the state around renewable energy, uh, laid the groundwork for the green energy transition. We've done um, a lot of the groundwork around uh, ocean health and protection. And now we need to, as you're saying, connect the dots. We need to create and lead on, I guess, sort of intersectional or integrated solutions so that when we talk about better jobs, we're talking about more affordable housing, we talk about equity, we realize they all are in, integrated with climate. Um, they all become part of a, a one issue that needs to get um, talked about together. And so one example I think about is uh, higher education. And our state college uh, systems, we really want to increase enrollment. Enrollment is down right now. And one of the biggest impediments to increasing enrollment is a lack of affordable housing in close proximity to the campuses. So now affordable housing is, it becomes an education issue, right? And if you mm -hmm. don't have affordable housing and people are, are driving long, long ways, then it becomes a climate issue because we, we need to think about transportation hubs. We need to think about other ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think it is helpful to have deep, deep experience on, on climate and environmental issues, along with practical on the ground experience as a mayor um, dealing with a homeless encampment. You know, During COVID, I, I had to deal with a homeless encampment here in Sausalito. I had to deal with a budget shortfall. I had to have to deal with disaster preparedness. So I know what that looks like. 
uh, when we pass legislation and how it gets implemented on the ground. And, and I'm very pragmatic. I, I prefer common sense solutions where you can take action. It's what we got to do. Uh, they're not easy, as you say. The level of expertise required uh, for local governments to respond effectively is very high bar. And uh, your work as a local government official and at the Center for Sea Rise Solutions is just the kind of pragmatic, nuts and bolts, common sense step uh, forward that I think uh, communities need around the country. So if you're a local elected official on the American shoreline and you're starting to encounter these issues and looking to get up to speed on the technical issues involved, reach out to the Center for Sea Rise Solutions uh, founded by Janelle Kelman. It's at seariseSolutions.org. Uh, Janelle, what a treat. Uh, I am so thrilled that you're running for lieutenant governor. I hope you win. I'm not a California voter. I'm a Washington <laughs> state voter, but I'd vote for you. And I would love to see you as a keynote speaker at the ASBPA meeting sometime in the future. Uh, your it. leadership and, uh, and, and background are just perfect. Uh, we need it so badly in America. So uh, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to talk to us on this show. Thank you, guys. You know, I, um, I'm kind of a, a Noah fangirl here. And so uh, the fact that you guys are, are partnering with such a great federal partner on this is, is really exciting. And, and I just want to commend you all on the work you're doing and sharing these resources. I, I hope somebody, hope lots of people call me after this and say, hey, we have these issues in my community. How, how can we help? I'd love for you to come to a workshop. I'd love to get on the phone, get on Zoom with you and talk about it so we can learn from each other. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Janelle Kelman. She is a one-time mayor of Sausalito, California, a city council member there, a decade-long professional on the planning commission, founder of the Center for Sea Level Rise Solutions, and a candidate for lieutenant governor of California. One of the great guests we've ever had on this show, Tyler. I really appreciate you putting this one together. Oh,